This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to season one of The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. We had an incredible interview today. You know, I, I was thinking before we did this interview, like we're really living in this a saddening, challenging time for our country on all these different fronts. And, you know, we talked to someone like Edwin Estevez, and he completely put a, a different perspective on my day. And then beyond, I, I really want to know more about what uh, Edwin and his ACO are doing now after spending some time with him today. Yeah, Eric, Edwin is such an absolute, you know, inspiration to me and to everybody that I've come across who has interacted with Edwin. He's just a guy who is an incredible down to earth, really great leader. I've known Edwin for about four and a half years, and he's been with the ACLC for about that time. And it was just a no brainer for us when we were thinking about who to invite, who should be a kickoff podcast interview that Edwin is the guy. Um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, he's actually a public speaker as well. So he's just got this great personality to go along with truly incredible wisdom and leadership skill sets that uh, just round him out. Fun guy to interview. Dan, I really think you're spot on, buddy. I mean, I am, I'm the new ED that to the ACLC and I've only been in the seat a couple of months and it's really the first time I've gotten to know Edwin. And I'm just, I was blown away after this interview. I mean, he's really a remarkable leader and, and just knowing his background. I mean, this guy, I mean, he's got a background unlike any other ACO executive I've known. I mean, he's got experience in international education and has worked in all these different countries. Um, he has clinical social work and mental health counseling background. He's a researcher. You mentioned he's a public speaker. He founded his own human and resource capital development company, and he was the provost and COO for a liberal arts university. And then he started an ACO, which is one of the most successful physician-led ACOs in the country. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah, literally one of the most successful, and it's so impressive to see the change that he's brought about. In fact, um, you know, when you think about the article in the New Yorker by Atul Gawande that that highlighted Mike Callan, Texas, and it really it really didn't highlight him. It kind of uh, painted them in a really negative connotation and put these guys on the map nationally for 
what an industry and what a, a healthcare system uh, should not be doing. And here's Edwin and his team of leaders that he mentions in the podcast that have just done such a great job at transforming that area and changing, doing some amazing work that, that really stuck out to me, Eric. One of the parts that is impressive is the work that they've done with social determinants of health, really understanding and knowing the people that they work with and their culture. A fantastic example of how to make that change. I couldn't agree more. And thinking back at the conversation we just had, I mean, I remember him saying, you know, failure isn't an option. You can't have any fear of risk. You have to go into this. And, and you know, for a lot of the physicians I've worked with in ACOs, you know, it's hard to overcome that, especially when you have to wait 18 months for the final recon to know if you, you know, won in a shared savings arrangement. But going back to that New Yorker article, I remember when that came out. I mean, it sent a shockwave in the industry. And I remember President Obama, you know, holding that up in a speech once saying, this is everything that's wrong with the American health healthcare system and why we have to fix it. And that was all about McAllen, Texas, which is where Edwin started his ACO. And they've had sustained victory and winning with managing this population over six years. Um, it's, it's amazing. And I, I just think our listeners are in for an absolute treat. So why don't we just, let's kick it over to Edwin and let's learn more about his amazing story and what our listeners can do to win in this race to value. Edwin, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you. You and I have known each other for a few years now, and it's great to have you as our first guest. As I said, you've been a member of the ACLC for over four years, and, and we know you have some impressive experience in your work with value, and we're excited to interview you about that today. I'm wondering, Edwin, if, if you've got a specific memory of the ACLC that you'd like to share with us this morning, anything that sticks out in our years together. Yeah, it does. Thank you, Dan, and thank you to the ACLC for the invitation and the opportunity to, to share our story and our, and our common narrative, if you will, in this value creation and around healthcare. Um, one of my favorite memories actually is, uh, I believe it was in Baltimore, or one of those uh, convening, uh, in-person convenings, where uh, we took the picture with the big uh, printout of all of the competencies that have been developed uh, over the years with uh, tons of hours of conversations around what were some of these keys kind of uh, skill sets that were necessary for organizations to produce effective delivery of value-based care. And so that that was a great moment. It was a great picture. It was a great opportunity for a ton of us uh, who've been shaping that process to get together and, and celebrate uh, what what come to this to that moment. Yeah, Edwin, that's a great comment and a great memory. I remember that well. And we got your signature on that big banner and, and the signature of all the others who contributed to it. The Accountable Care Atlas is was the the name of that and the the title of that work that we produced and uh, and it's definitely really meaningful. Um, I'm wondering if you'd be able to speak to how you've been able to use the atlas in your organization. Yeah, we we used it in several forms. Uh, one was actually to give shape to the leadership uh, teams, and uh, so we organized ourselves around IT and finance and administrative. Uh, functions and so on and so forth and give us an opportunity to actually uh, organize our, our team efforts. Uh, another way that we used it was actually we, we did a little bit of an evaluation, a self-evaluation 
internal evaluation as we continually matured in the implementation of these skill sets and and competencies, we, we use the Atlas as a way of saying, okay, are we progressing in the way in which others are actually contributing to, to the work? And so that was that was a good measuring stick, um, both on the care coordination side as well as in the IT uh, integration process. And so it was it was a helpful, helpful mirror into how we were doing and how we were progressing. Ludwin, that's a, a great memory and appreciate you sharing that with us. And it's good to hear that you've been able to apply the work that you've spent so much time in helping us produce. And we're always grateful to you and to your team and, and the work that you've helped us with as over these past number of years as we've created and identified and understood these competencies that organizations need for succeeding in value. No, thank you. I think the work of the ACLC uh, in over the years has been instrumental in Precisely, and in in, I think in, in the shaping of of models and, and a framework that will give an opportunity for an organization like ours, which is a small physician-led, physician-owned, often limited by resources, uh, to actually plug in to national caliber thinking that allows us to then sophisticatedly engage the work. And so that's been that's been fun. It's been great. Not to say, and notwithstanding of the amazing people that are behind the work, uh, inclusive of yourself, Dan, and everybody else who we've uh, come in contact with over the last four years. One of the best times and best memories of the ACLC engagement is precisely that, our opportunity to share freely with others who are in this journey uh, in creating this, this narrative of value-based. So it's been, it's been a great time. Edwin, you and I share so much in common with our experience leading physician-led ACOs. Uh, I want to dive into that uh, topic a little bit more with you today. Um, you may have seen the um, article in the American Journal of Managed Care last month from our ACLC research partner, David Muelstein. He said physician groups are becoming the dominant type of new entrant into the ACO space and have been the most successful in achieving savings to date. When you see all these physician-led ACOs saving at a pretty phenomenal rate, you know, I've seen uh, an analysis of the 2018 MSSP results, and I believe it was something around $180 PMPM savings for physician-led ACOs compared to health system-led ACOs that of those that won at about $26 PMPM. Obviously, we know hospital-led ACOs, they have to contend with demand destruction on their fee-for-service lines of business, and if they reduce admissions, ED visits procedures that cuts into their fee-for-service business, and that's a dichotomy that they have to deal with. Physician-led ACOs don't really have those conflicts, but a lot of people over the years have, think, have thought physician-led ACOs really can't execute. You know, physicians, especially in ones that are independent, you know, they, they have different EHR systems. It's tough to, you know, I've heard the, the term herding cats when leading physicians. Why do you think that we're seeing the majority of new ACOs led by physician groups? And then what is it that makes these physician-led ACOs more likely to succeed in the current health value landscape? Thanks, Eric. I think that there's so much to what you said there that is true. I mean, the data continually suggests that the success of physician-led, I, I think, is not going away. I think if we kind of simplify and, and unpack that process, a lot of what's at stake is the risk associated engaged in the value-based care. One. Two, when, when the physicians understand and there's the right, appropriate, balanced 
infrastructure that is administratively supportive to the work of the physician in the context of the office, I think that those kinds of mechanics ultimately lead to success, lead to having frontal lobe kind of analysis and engagement from the physician. But also, um, because of the nature of how uh, healthcare is delivered, the number of indicators that are associated around the care of a patient that is necessary for them to work in concert in order to deliver the appropriate success, then what happens is that data and data distillment is what I like to call it, needs to have a a really significant actionable step. And so regardless of the level of integration on the IT side, regardless of the level of contracting that may happen and the understanding from the physicians or the physician organizations on levels of contract, and regardless of the complexities even of the quality metrics and what's measured or not, at the end of the day, when you engage risk, when you engage comprehensive engagement in terms of uh, uh, the support system and the infrastructure and actionable data right in front of those who are caring for that data, I think something magical happens, particularly in value-based care, where we know that the shift from volume to value must have those three elements combined. And so I think that that's why you will see, I think physicians often, like, like other professions and other, or other disciplines, other personality types as well, the control, engagement, uh, invitation, ownership, all of those kinds of words are critical to the success. But uh, these dyads between appropriate administrative infrastructure and physician engagement and leadership that I think is the perfect formula for having these these uh, organizations be successful. Indeed, and I am so impressed with the results that RGV ACO has had since it was started in 2013. I, you know, when I was on your website the other day, I see that you've had 60 million in savings uh, since that time. Uh, you and I both have that same passion. You know, I've firsthand how physician-led ACOs with a strong primary care network can really focus on patient care in the outpatient setting and reduce hospitalizations. I want to know specifically, and you mentioned some great, great pearls of wisdom here, things that you've done, uh, physician engagement, having ownership, uh, information technology, and then ultimately the physician leadership. And we all know it comes down to that. Are there any other things that you would say has really contributed to this uh, success of RGV ACO over the years? Yeah, thanks, Eric. I think a lot of what has helped us, and I think for every ACO, it's, it, you know, if you've seen one ACO, you've seen one ACO. I think we've heard that quite often, right? Um, but there's some mechanics, and obviously the work of the ACLC precisely has come out to be that level of engagement where uh, uh, competencies that are generic in form and perhaps applicable and replicable across organizational type can help to be able to drive certain direction. However, an ACO is an ACO, and local issues, local context is, is pretty significant. So in our context, we have been, in addition to the elements you mentioned, our, our community engagement has been substantial. We, 40% of our population is diabetic. If you extrapolate that issue, then that means that a ton of community resources must be in place in order to assist that population from nutrition services to appropriate care coordination strategies to partnering with the local food bank to getting food security campaigns in place on and on and on and on. We can't do that by ourselves. We must be able to drive appropriate partnership. And so we spent a ton of time uh, leveraging what I would call the social capital of the engagement of ACO and value-based engagement across that organization. That's been 
uh, that's been uh, foundational. We've elevated significant care coordination replication approaches. In other words, our care coordination processes from chronic care management to visitation to uh, kind of uh, nurse practitioner social work models uh, engagement to complex case management review systems to even expenditure analysis processes that are, yes, predicated upon the similar kind of context that most IT uh, functionality goes into, but in the context of the office with the physician engagement and their team uh, wrapped around that process, we've been able to see how that also allows the office to engage in a different level with care coordination. But that's been significant. Our hospital partnerships uh, or, or care deliveries partnerships in general, but also the hospital system to be able to uh, facilitate that partnership where we can get data appropriately, where we can get notifications of, of uh, patients engaged in the ER uh, unnecessarily, let's assume that that's the case, and, and engaging that process along the way, that has been pretty foundational. Those are just a few, but examples that are really, really critical for the success of the ACO across the board. But for sure, physician-led, physician-owned, small, driven by that leadership, but engaged in the community in that way. Edwin, you're talking about some things that are pretty important. And one of the things that I want to circle back to is this idea of the independent physicians. And I think you have a fair number of independent physicians that have, have decided to join with our GVACO and participate in something that's a lot bigger than what was just them and their independent practice before the ACO came about. And so one of the things that I'm curious about is how do you get uh, a lot of independent providers to join ranks and have a vision of something bigger than themselves? Um, what's that culture transformation look like? How do you sell that idea to them and, and get them committed to something like this? That's a, that's a pretty good question. I think some of it, uh, it's already in who they are, um, and perhaps a certain level of, of altruism is embedded in, in, in being a physician and, and wanting to help and wanting to engage, wanting to solve problems, uh, wanting to find solutions that, that help people. I think we, we tap into that quite a bit. Uh, to ensure that 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 sense of intrinsic value are associated with the work that we're doing is it's tapped into. I mean, people care uh, because people care, and so knowledge is not as as significant as caring. And so we tap into caring, and so we want to make sure that um, that that was there, and that and that all of our physicians and providers in general, uh, 140 of them, eventually uh, stayed with that sense of of caring at the center of what we wanted to do. Compassion for the work, commitment to the mission, buy-in to the larger picture, those kinds of things eventually were part of, of this sequence. But also the sense of interdependence. And by that, I mean system-owned process, right? But also not a, just a full open system where everybody is an independent cowboy out there doing their own thing. Um, but in reality, creating a sense of buy-in uh, to patient-centeredness as a way of engaging all of these independent offices. The ACO does now own one office. And so it, all of these independent uh, mavericks, if you will, engaged in common practice and common mission and common approaches as best as possible, but still leave within them and for them plenty of room uh, for their own independent work and for own independent approaches and so on and so forth. That is challenging. But if committed to it, 
independent physicians want to stay independent. But how do you create interdependency into this ACO value ultimately was, was kind of the approach. Uh, and we did so through the patient-centeredness model, uh, whether it's patient-centered medical home uh, from the NCQA or just the concept itself of really transforming office operations and workflow around patient-centeredness provided common language, provided common approach, a kind of a, a glossary of terms that everybody could agree upon. And that created a common playbook that ultimately led people there. So this idea of ensuring that they are, they're interdependent uh, was pretty substantial. Such a great uh, story to tell there, Edwin. We, we spoke a little bit earlier about the difference between physician-led ACOs and hospital-led ACOs. And I, I want to hit on that point a little bit more um, because I've heard a lot over the years that physician-led ACOs, you know, they lack the capital, the administrative firepower to really spin up an infrastructure to support population health. You know, there was a study, for example, at NACOS that said, you know, $25 PMPM is on average what it costs to build an infrastructure in just the early onset of the ACO. I mean, for an ACO like yours starting off in 2013, that means you would need, you know, $2 million. You know, and there was a study that came out last year in the health affairs, and it reported that 40% of ACOs have a management partner, and two-thirds of those ACOs um, shared their financial risks and rewards with that MSO partner. And having come from the MSO background, um, I understand you know, where that can provide some economies of scale, some turnkey infrastructure to really provide capabilities to physicians. But what I'm most impressed about with RGV ACO is that you've been able to do it completely physician-led without really relying on an MSO to provide a lot of that heft to make things happen. Edwin, can you tell me, how did RGV ACO achieve its level of success without a capital partner or an MSO to really provide that heft and, and that level of infrastructure to really help you execute on your value agenda? I think that that's a, that's a really, really good question that doesn't just necessarily have an analysis of of what happens administratively in order to make it happen, whether it's capital investment associated with it, or perhaps even uh, an extended partnership of sort that that facilitates the capital infrastructure to be there. But but a policy question, and and let me tell you that without the advance payment of 2012, and our start date was 20 April 27 April of 20 the actual date April 27 of 2012, but April 2012, that opportunity to engage policymaking, which the CMMI approach at that particular time was to provide these advanced payment uh, grants of sort that needed to be actually paid back upon achievement of savings. That was the policy decision, creative policy decision making out of CMMI that facilitated for small organizations like this to have a chance. So my, my question would be, if we are going to be physician focus and we're going to be physician led and we know that the success is coming what other policy opportunities can there be in place in order to ensure that just like the advanced payment models that came out in 2012 can be leveraged now into new ideas and new policy making to to do that without that program 
we don't exist. It's very hard to exist and stay as fully independent and as successful as RGVACO has been uh, in this particular context. And so what, what facilitated the jumpstart, what facilitated the injection of a, of a thought that turned into policy, policy into program, program into money, that gave her the opportunity for this to be in place was what actually gave birth to RGVACO. From that moment, then we were able to apply through a number of other kind of administratively savvy opportunities internally to be able to do that. But that was facilitated by that by that injection of that creative policy making. Oh, I love that response, Edwin. And you know, it reminds me of what we're uh, what we just saw recently. North Carolina Blue Cross Blue Shield. They're providing stimulus to primary care practices to be able to sustain you know through this current pandemic. And the only catch is you have to be in an ACO contract. You know, we're we we want to partner with you. Um, in risk and in population health with you and we'll help sustain you um, as we make that that seismic shift as an industry. We want you to be a part. Of it. I, I'm, I'd love to be able to speak a little bit more with you today. I mean, what what do you think as uh, practices are, are looking to evolve from fee-for-service to um, value-based payment? What other creative solutions um, like what we saw out of North Carolina can really help catalyze that shift? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's a wonderful, by the way, that's a wonderful solution, perhaps uh, one that all blues need to adopt across the entire country in terms of what's happening. But the opportunity to to work with ACOs um, and physicians in particular engage in ACO contracting is pretty substantial, but it's also very complicated, very com- more so than not everything that is complex needs to be complicated, but sometimes complicated things are complex. And so in this case, I, I think that advanced payment of sort, the PMPM formula, how that gets established in order to provide appropriate care coordination, because in the care coordination model, there's plenty of activity that goes in both on the medical clinical side, but also the psychosocial development in order to ensure that that population is adjusted accordingly. I think some some creative thinking around risk adjustment and benchmarking potentially can come in as well. Um, I mean, when you think about, and, and, and it's been developed over the last 10 years, we've seen quite a bit of growth, particularly influenced by other programs and other methods around healthcare industry. But the idea of understanding that relationship, I'm not sure we've perfected it. So maybe uh, more creative thinking around risk adjustment and benchmarking could potentially be, be a consideration as physician. Let's assume that there's no major infrastructure over a physician led. To what degree does that ask risk to the management? Well, it does. Uh, and so physician-led, if you want to support physician, physician-led kind of organizations, provide opportunities for physicians to actually uh, receive additional, quote-unquote, compensation or, quote-unquote, incentives that will give us an opportunity then to be able to leverage different strategies and different resources. Those are just but a few. I'm sure there's a ton out there that can be captured, but from our experience, those become pretty prominent because injection of capital to be able to do the, the the successful implementation of the model that we've selected is always necessary. Edwin, I'd like to follow up on this. You're talking about the injection of capital that was so important to you being able to start the ACO. And obviously the upfront capital is important and an organization has to get that from somewhere. But the next part is what do you do with that capital? An organization might spend it on something that's less effective and not be as successful as our GVACO has been over the past six years. So I'd like to focus a little bit on how did you spend the money? What did you guys decide to prioritize 
up front to make sure that you could have the impact you were looking for. And then a follow-up question to that is how did you incentivize the other the providers to join you? What went back to them? What did you reinvest into the ACO? If you could break that down for us. Yeah. So the best way for me to kind of answer your question then is is to think of kind of people, processes, and technologies model in terms of what we needed to do from an injection of of both capital and and how that capital was going to be able to be uh, then reinvested into the uh, the equation of of how we support the offices. And so let me just talk about that people in particular. There was plenty of capital associated with with leadership. We needed to incentivize not just the core leadership, but across the entire population, the leadership opportunities. And so we needed to pay for that time because in order for a physician-led organization who sees 20 to 30 patients a day uh, or 15 to 20 now in value-based context, to take of their time to be able to do that, we needed to have some form of a compensatory uh, a substitute in order to ensure that their uh, opportunities were seen as critically important as well. So you invest in people, you invest in, in appropriate care coordinators, uh, you hire at the highest level of license in order to make sure that you're able to do more with that license. Uh, you hire nurses and social workers, uh, both uh, internally, and you hire nutritionists because of the complications of the population in which we were dealing with at that particular time. So you invest in people and you invest in their time and you invest in that process in, in those engagements. Then you kind of move into processes. There were a ton of data dissemination that we needed to engage in. And so we needed to make sure that our offices were, were actually supported accordingly on the patient-centered medical home model. And so we incentivize, and I'm just giving you a few examples, but we incentivize participation in patient-centered medical home certification. If you got it, you got a $10,000 bonus. We support it with a process and engage you in that. Why? Because we needed to create common structure, common language, glossary of terms, and sustain their level of interdependence with what we were doing at that particular time. So that that's a, that's a process investment. And obviously, then on technologies, I remember conversations with technology companies nine years ago about how to do this work. And there was not one quote that did not come with millions of dollars attached to it. And I could not believe it. I could not understand how that could be the case, that the level of technology associated with this new model was going to be so expensive. And so, obviously, we developed our own, and we went into, into creating our own integrative models, and we created our own integrative processes. Our IT team is superb, just as high qualified as our leadership in the medical process, for example. And so, they began to absorb policy into technology. And that was the genius of our work, I think, of their work, all their credit, was absorbing policy into technology. There's not one EMR out there that's actually applicable for value-based concepts. So how do we create then an integrated process, repository way that ultimately created data extraction, which, by the way, at that point, no one was either interfacing appropriately. Obviously, much development has taken place since, but created that opportunity along the way to be able to say, okay, um, we have now interfacing data that's appropriate to the workflow of this office in order then to drive value-based expectations. For example, patient comes in, what happens in the pre-visit approach because of the data that's being gathered to ensure that that pre-visit is ultimately impacted accordingly and the patient is ready for their visit. Uh, that Those kinds of integrated processes capital was injected in there, was invested in there to ensure that people, processes, and technologies were well aligned. 
Edwin, I think our listeners would like to know more about this population that you've been talking about. So uh, let's talk a little bit about where you're located, uh, some of the things that are unique to you. RGV Rio Grande Valley is southernmost tip of Texas along the U.S.-Mexico border. You've mentioned that you have a very high diabetic population. Um, we know that Texas was made famous by the Atul Gawande article in the New Yorker and claimed that the area was the epitome of everything that was wrong in American healthcare. And President Obama cited that article about McAllen, Texas as his motivation for wanting to reform the healthcare industry. There's been a lot of change since that article all those years ago in that area. And I think that uh, RGV can claim a lot of responsibility for the changes that have been occurring there and the successes that we've seen. How do you feel about your role and your ACO in rewriting that narrative and being a national example? And can you tell us a little bit about the work that you've done, maybe some more detail about the partnerships you've made and and the efforts that you've made to address that, the cost challenges that McAllen faced? Thanks, Dan. We we were pushed into fame (laughs) or deep fame, I guess, would be the way to say that through the, the sources you just cited. And obviously the narrative conversations that were taking place nationally at that particular time. I think that, yes, this area was fully contaminated with perhaps a misutilization of resources in one side, on one end, and perhaps, again, compounded by the complexities that were associated in the healthcare needs of the people that were also here. Obviously, uh, a border town, uh, and, and again, as you mentioned, uh, that that border town uh, provides for quite a bit of, of dynamic engagement with our patients in a very fruitful, culturally relevant way that facilitates a clear understanding of, of who they are as people. And so when we launched the, in the, the, this idea and when we engaged in, in driving this change, there were a few kind of concepts that came about from our medical directors and our leaders at that particular time. Uh, very uh, famously, uh, failure was not an option for us, right? Type NASA approach, right? Where we wanted to make sure that as we embarked in this, we said, it's not gonna be an option. Two, let's not be afraid of risk. Uh, risk taking uh, keeps people on their toes and, and it gives you a sense of commitment and focus that, that is important. And so uh, our medical directors, our board, our physicians that were invited, were invited into risk-taking from the beginning so that there were no opportunities for, well, let's see how this works in year two. We needed to move into success immediately year one. Um, And I I think that that created a sense of engagement that was there that matches the cultural nuances associated with this population here. This is an industrious population, uh, a go-getter type population, uh, one that is uh, unashamedly hardworking and driven uh, and obviously uh, also pretty impacted by uh, resources. It's the poorest county in the state of Texas uh, is significantly impacted by diabetic conditions, predominantly because of the access uh, to the foods and the cultural foods that are associated with the culture that's here. And so we needed to, to address that. And so in our approach, what we wanted to do to change the narrative was we were, we were going to marry the community, engage the community appropriately. So our nutrition services don't say, you know, we, they don't promote don't eat tortillas because don't eat tortillas is not going to fit. It's not going to fly. 
what we do promote is eat less tortillas. Uh, and that message kept tortillas in the message and at the same time allow for us then to begin to change the narrative. On, on utilization processes was, you know, let's say, let's, let's pick on one particular industry, home health. Yes, definitely something to reform, something, something for sure to actually address, but to ignore the value of home health was also detrimental. So we, we engage in home care and change the language of just home health to home care. So our care coordination strategies and our opportunities to partner with appropriate home healths were, were necessary, but also were effective or efficient in the operations. And so I had a meeting with 40 of the home healths locally to say, listen, this is the direction that we're going. This is how we're going to proceed. This is the level of partnership that, that we're looking for. You're either with us or against this type message. And, and we're looking for your a creative genius also in how we can partner with you and our patients. And so uh, workflows and referrals processes change in the offices to ensure that those were directly supervised by the PCP or the, or the provider in that particular case and wanted to make sure that we drove that. And so we addressed the community message in a culturally appropriate way. We engaged the change of the narrative through the change of the processes that we could actually control. We embraced the community with all of its sense of what the community meant. And then we addressed this sense of interdependence with everybody who wanted to partner with us. And that gave us a chance to, to be uh, uh, where we're at today. And, and our, our hope is that our work has yielded other opportunities. So now there are four ACOs in the Valley um, that are doing excellent work that are just as successful as RGB ACO has been. And that collaborative, now we get together and we share ideas and combine efforts because we don't see it necessarily as a competition. We see it as an opportunity to actually change the narrative locally uh, for the benefit of the patients that we're serving. Edwin, it's such an inspiring story. Uh, in the work that we did together uh, with the ACLC and creating the Accountable Care Atlas, you may recall we identified a specific competency to understand the unique cultural characteristics of the population served to implement changes in the organization to provide high value care. Your organization has done superlative work in engaging patients and partnering with them in a culturally relevant and appropriate way to produce the outcomes that you're seeking in, in health value. Whereas McAllen, Texas, you know, seven or eight years ago when that Guande article came out, it was, you know, it, it was what not to do. The, the spotlight was put on your um, on Hidalgo County and McAllen is, you know, this is this is exactly what's wrong with American healthcare. And I look to your story and the success of RGV ACO as being something that now this is a spotlight for what we want to we what we want to accomplish in the American healthcare system. And in doing so, I think it's important to have some conversation around addressing racial disparities. Obviously, it's of paramount importance in value-based care. The research shows that Hispanic patients do better with Hispanic physicians that can connect in a culturally relevant way. We've seen that in the African-American community. Given the national dialogue that we have in our country with the BLM movement, I, I've been thinking a great deal about racial disparities in care and how potentially institutional racism in healthcare can manifest itself as a public health issue. Is there anything that you would want to share in terms of thinking back at the cultural competency that we developed at, at the ACLC and then what you've been able to create in, in your ACO? Is there something the rest of the country can learn from you 
um, in how to do this in a culturally re relevant way, deliver better care for patients. Thanks, Eric, for bringing that, what I would consider probably one of the most critical issues right now affecting public health. I think matters of um, inequities, matters of equity, and, and particularly health equity, matters of, of uh, racial unrest uh, in terms of our relationships and connection with the overall sense of health. I think it's a pretty significant, uh, not one to ignore issue, uh, particularly on the value-based concepts. We know for a fact that matters of behavioral health and mental health uh, parity have not actually achieved the level of parity necessary necessary in, in, in how we manage value base. And so we uh, just just even that alone is a significant point. I'm not sure what, what can be learned nationally from what we've done, but let me just speak into what are some of the critical things that, that we have uh, we have engaged in. All of our publications are in bilingually, uh, bilingually done. Just that little step, everything that we do, everything that we engage, and even the, the, the outward facing process is like a website, so on and so forth. We don't pay as much attention to that because we know for a fact that our patients are in our offices and in their homes and in our communities. So partnering with the local daycares, as they call them here, adult daycares, was more significant for us in terms of communication strategies than even uh, providing an electronic portal for patients to actually have access uh, to the information there. And so our opportunity to be connected to community needs is pretty significant. We know, we know, we know this uh, for not only scientifically know this from, from social science, but we also know it from the data that we're capturing that the level of stress that our population is, is, has engaged in, uh, this is a predominantly migrant population, uh, 12 to 14 hour days oftentimes uh, in terms of their work, a very, very locally focused in terms of their concerns, uh, yet with a sense of national pressure around them in terms of who they are and what they do uh, that has created quite a bit of anxiety around how they engage the healthcare system. So for us to actually engage families in any kind of activity required quite a bit of high trust. And so we developed trust. We built that sense of community with them. Any communication from uh, expected to compliant communication from CMS to the patients. We tried to present it in a way in which it was friendly, approachable, engageable, uh, non-threatening because any, any formality to that communication provided some form of unrest as well. Little things like that, paying attention to how people engage their daily living, how they do things, how they connect to their world matters to public health, matters to health in general. And so we wanted to make sure that we were focused on that, that and that we drive a change around that, that expectation from just being aware of the space in which we were going to do this work. Edwin, thank you for sharing that. You and I both agree that racial inequities in care are something that needs to be addressed. It's of paramount importance and, and health value. And I appreciate you telling your story. I think there's a lot to be said about what RGV ACO can do to contribute to the national conversation. It's important to have these important conversations about racial disparities. And I look back at the case study that ACLC co-founder Mark McClellan wrote and co-authored with your medical director, Dr. Jose Pena. And I remember thinking about you have an ACO, we mentioned this earlier, 40% um, of your patient population is diabetic. 
you, you're in Hidalgo County, one of the poorest counties in Texas. You have about a third of your residents living below the federal poverty level. There's a diabetes epidemic in the Hispanic population on the border. And you also have to deal with heart failure and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and all these other chronic conditions that are prevalent in the senior lives community, but mostly, uh, you know, so in, in a Hispanic community such as yours. And, you know, I, I recall Dr. Pena illustrating the, the framework that RGV ACO created in, in its ACO diabetes care plan. There was different pillars like continuous improvement, aligning incentives, care coordination. Um, can you walk us through your diabetes care playbook to let our listeners know about how, you, how did your ACO actually perform this work in lowering admissions and, and readmissions and ED visits, managing that population? Um, and I'm also curious, how has that playbook changed in light of COVID-19, knowing that COVID-19 is more likely to hospitalize or even kill patients with diabetes? How has your ACO been able to deal with that in your pandemic response with this particular population segment? Thanks for that question, Eric. The concept of diabetes management, and uh, you know, obviously you, you mentioned Dr. Jose Peñas, our uh, chief medical director, uh, Dr. Pedro Peñalo, Dr. Pedro Mardugo, Dr. Matt Johnson, Dr. Daniel Rocha, Dr. Alejandra Yusmendi, who sit on the board as the medical directors now, and Dr. Uh, Jasmine Maldonado. But there is one person that sits on the board that changed the entire dynamic of how we approach this process. And it was one particular strategy that also informed what the medical community was going to do with diabetes. And that person is Mr. Jose Soto, who is our patient representative on the board, but also chairs the patient engagement committee. We created an engagement committee led by patients for patients as a feedback loop into the operations of the ACO, but also into recommendations about the patient experience with the offices in particular because he's a diabetic related to diabetes and we needed to make sure that whether it was on the utilization side on home health and inpatient activity that was unnecessary and on the clinical side, let's make sure we tackle diabetes right away from the beginning, knowing that that exacerbation of that particular medical condition creates additional problems around it. But if we know that situation well enough and we unpack it well enough, what we see at the heart of it was, yes, there were some protocols and engagement that needed to be designed in order to ensure that a checklist manifesto of sort within the context of office operations was in play to ensure that nothing fell through the cracks in the diabetes management from, from appointment to follow-up to care coordination. And eventually, even later on, chronic care management came as a formal program. We were doing it from the beginning, which was intensive telephonic engagement about progress related to diabetes and glucose monitoring. So that process was there. But the feedback loop was created by the Patient Engagement Committee. And this Patient Engagement Committee provided the opportunity, the, the platform, to have a feedback loop in terms of how we were doing. They gave recommendations on how to uh, create uh, the, the flyers or the, the, the checklist uh, paperwork that we were doing in order to monitor the booklet that we created. Uh, they gave recommendations on how to ensure that the staff was appropriately trained in the front uh, when people would come in with per perhaps some some hypoglycemic or, or hyperglycemic at any given moment and be able to do that kind of triaging right in the front office uh, or perhaps even uh, the day before when they were actually confirming their appointment for the following day. All of those little details came about as a result of the patient sitting at the table 
the patient making decisions with those at the table. And again, that's a policy decision. The patient representative at the table of an ACO came as a result of policymaking and now it eventually turned into a great program and services. And we expanded that by the creation of the patient engagement committee led by patients and for patients to be able to give us the appropriate feedback and engagement. And so that was at the heart of it. So all of our physicians, and again, not just here in the Valley because of the population that we have, we also expanded out to New Jersey with very similar population. We left New Jersey just to ensure that we stayed local because we believe local healthcare is probably uh, more efficient and effective in terms of the delivery of value base. But the population itself called for us to make the adjustments, called for us to ensure that we were appropriately connecting to them and engage them. But it was led by patients. It was led through that process of patient and patient engagement. And then on the COVID side, I mean, obviously we know that the difficulties and the challenges that are there associated with, for example, how do you conduct telemedicine in an area where technology access is, a, is an issue? How do you conduct uh, visitations uh, when uh, it's hard to, to do so and ensure that people are there and follow up with telephonic engagement and so on and so forth? And so a lot of what we are doing is intensifying these services, but ensuring still that we knock on that door and that our care coordinators very safely and protectively engage the work of ensuring that those patients are being attended to. On the nutrition side, we've partnered with the local supermarkets, and so we do shopping tours. And these shopping tours, what it facilitates, because people visit supermarket more than they visit their PCP, and so why not put our services right where they're at? and say, hey, local supermarkets, we need to make sure we partner with a shopping tour, but this is going to be for a diabetic population. Yeah, you can push your products if you need to, but what we need to ensure is that the nutritionist is involved in order to guide and instruct and provide information and guidance and then provide a report back in into the offices regarding the consumption of foods from people. Those kinds of partnerships that are localized, yes, culturally relevant, most definitely, engage at the heart of the issue, we're patient-guided and patient-instructed. Edwin, are you saying that you've got a nutritionist in the grocery store to help the patients with their shopping? I'm saying yes. We, we have uh, a nutritionist in central office that partners with a local supermarket chain. They have 14 nutritionists around the supermarkets uh, in, in the area. And uh, part of the services that we've been able to shape and design, and they have also kind of taken the initiative on, is to provide registered dietitians inside of these shopping stores, providing an opportunity for uh, education, information. Again, we call them shopping tours and basically is, hey, uh, here are products that you will like, but they have less carbs and less calories and better for your health. That sounds so incredible. That's so innovative and, and it's so impressive that you guys would think to do that. I'm curious as to the patient response to that and the uptake of those services and, and also curious about the financial sustainability of that model and that approach. Yeah, I, I mean, that, those are the kinds of things where it goes back to the earlier point, right, in terms of what kind of capital is needed in order to sustain an infrastructure that actually addresses the needs of the ACO in the context in the community in which they're trying to do good value, right? So if diabetes is a problem, diabetes is exacerbated by the consumption of food, food is gonna be at the supermarket, why not partner with the supermarkets? And again, to, to much of their credit, to much of the local supermarket credit, they already had something similar. We began to adapt it because of our registered dietitian who began to partner and reach out and say, hey, we can expand this micro level intervention so we can see 40 patients a month and do 
dietary consults, or we can become macroly focused and engaged now in multiplication of the same service at the place in which uh, we know that they're going to go at least once a week, right? And so those shopping tours were, uh, have been incredibly successful for us, and it gives us an opportunity to target something fun, something educational, something informational, but also very effective. Yeah, that's really amazing. I love that approach and what a neat opportunity that you've identified. Just as a point of clarification or logistics, is that a partnership where you're both, you know, the system, the the ACO and the grocery stores both financially invested in this or is it paid for by the ACO? Yeah, so we both are financially invested. We have hired a full-time registered dietitian on staff uh, who's been with us now for a year and a half or so too. And uh, her relationship with the local supermarket provides for then an expender services out of their registered dietitians, right? And so our goal basically is for our dietitian to serve as the kind of the liaison between the supermarket and the ACO. And then we eventually, we funnel some of these, but the, the supermarket was committed to having these registered dietitians on board already. They've expanded their program. Uh, I mean, uh, just yesterday was having a conversation with them about additional kinds of expansion, uh, programmatic things that we can do uh, to expand uh, how the supermarket can contribute to health. The supermarket chain can contribute to public health. They can contribute to an opportunity to actually, again, culturally relevant, provide uh, showcase products that are, are healthy rather than, than not, right? And so those conversations are there. And it, it goes back then to this idea. How do you leverage social capital in the community in which you're trying to do through the PCP relationship and the patient? Engage, yes, in value-based care. And obviously tons of medical needs are there and all the conditions that we know that need to be thought through from a medical engagement, we know that, but we are social beings. We are engaging community uh, context. We, we need community in order for us to be successful. So how do we do that in a way in which, was, which is effective and also appropriate? Those are just a few examples that, that we've attempted to engage in. And I know that there are 10 others across the country uh, that we can kind of extract and begin to say, hey, healthcare is more than just that one visit to your PCP. How do we leverage public health in a larger context? That's been exciting uh, as a result of this value-based narrative change that we have engaged in locally, but also engaged in the larger narrative of value-based care. Well, Edwin, this is a a great story. And I think that probably a lot of your success comes from your very interesting background. And so I want to touch on your background and how you got to RGVACO. And before we turn it over to you, I'll just highlight some key points that that we've observed and, and talked about a little bit together and about your background. And so you've got experience in the fields of international education in areas like South Africa, Thailand, Spain, and, and you've got clinical, social, and mental health counseling background, as well as research and analytics, and even the founder of a human and resource capital development company. And you've also served as a, a senior vice president, a provost, and a, a COO for a liberal arts college. With such varied experiences outside of healthcare, how did you find your way to RGVACO? And how have those experiences enhanced your role and your opportunities to serve your population? Dan, you just described the value of going to college in the United States of America. The power of a liberal arts education 
the ability to follow passion and engage passion uh, appropriately, and, and also the, the, the land of opportunity in terms of, of who we are and what we do can find a home as long as you're following your, your heart and your mind in that alignment. And I think that that narrative that you just described about me is precisely that. I've been uh, I've been engaged in two fronts. I organized all of those experiences in kind of two tracks, one healthcare, the other one education. And the two mirror very, very similar patterns, both in engagement, processes, people, uh, nuances, idiosyncrasies, so on, and so, policy challenges, so on and so forth. And those two fronts have actually uh, helped and shaped my career quite a bit. I was I started actually in mental health in kind of that context of community work and community organizing around mental health. And that, that then led into kind of a healthcare path that, that ultimately was there. But, but this idea of value-based was, was a conversation that one of the docs who was a great friend, Dr. Pedro Peñalo, reached out through, through Dr. Peña and said, hey, we're thinking about this. What do you think? You, you, you've been involved in grants and government stuff. Can you, can you check this government stuff that's coming out? And, and what do you think? And I said, well, we, we got to do this. This is an opportunity to change the system, uh, have an influence uh, on the system and change policy and apply policy appropriately. And so that provided for the platform that, that I'm currently serving right now. And, and through the ins and outs of my experiences, at the heart of the matter, um, you, you can call me a social worker, call me somebody who is interested in ensuring that I understand the person and the context of their environment and how that environment shapes the individual um, and how the individual ultimately reciprocally engages their environment. And, and for me to be able to influence that process through whether it's education or healthcare has been just a fascinating journey. I mean, obviously, uh, young enough to still have tons of energy to ensure that we're doing this well and that we're doing it for a long time. Uh, but the idea of, of engaging that sense of who is the individual in the context of that environment and how does that environment ultimately shape that individual has been my, my life journey. And I've done it, whether it's administration and or analytics or research or academia or social policy or even in this particular case, value-based care management. Uh, it's been through that same lens, through that same opportunity uh, maximizing opportunity of saying, how, how can we really leverage this relationship between the person and the environment? So it's been fun. It's, it's been amazing. It's been uh, challenging in many ways, and, but it's definitely a product of the great American education system called liberal arts. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great answer, Edwin. And along these lines, you know, you're talking about the intersection and the alignment of higher education and healthcare. And, and this is a topic that's really important to us is the ACLC is hosted by Western Governors University, and we're really thoughtful right now about the workforce development needs of all the, the individuals within healthcare organizations who need to you know, change or advance their development, understand competencies, get new skill sets. And what has been your approach to this? How have you applied the lessons that you know, you've learned from this, and how are you approaching that? that uh, workforce development with your independent practice uh, participants in the ACO? Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a really critical component. Once again, I think the ACLC and now with Western Governors uh, affiliation and partnership over the last couple of years, one of the, the, the fillings that this particular approach can, can actually cover is, is this idea of, of call it academic preparation or curriculum engagement or whatever the case may be, workforce preparation in this particular case, um, and how you, you, you connect the dots now 
from a, something that started through a policy change and now all of a sudden has turned out to be some form of a formal career, if you will. I think that that's a critical component. From our vantage point, our offices, we have a pretty substantive curriculum, if you will, uh, that we engage our offices through. And most of them are around patient-centeredness. And so we have what well, we call it a customer service because we believe that consumerism has actually uh, trickled in quite a bit into healthcare and the patient is too much of a passive design in the process. And so we do call it customer service in that regard. Uh, we also work quite a bit uh, with the offices on personal development, uh, matters of, of self-care and, and awareness of care and the concepts of the work that they're doing. We have uh, had sessions on personal growth, particularly, for example, on office management. Uh, so we, we grab the office managers and we do a little bit of teaching and learning around hiring and firing and developing your people and leadership growth and development within the context of who they are as office managers. Most office managers find themselves kind of just landing in that, in that job because they've done something well somewhere else in the office and, and they kind of slowly get into that space or they were excellent in bidding and so the revenue cycle needs to be paid attention to. So now you're an office manager. So you're great at project management, but may not be great at people management. So we work with that kind of context to ensure that our offices are receiving sustenance. This is the value of an MSO kind of model is precisely that, is that we're, we're engaging the offices with their needs and we provide that. If they need assistance on chronic care management implementation, we provide it. If they need X, Y, or Z, our goal is to ensure that we are a platform in which they can engage for learning should they need it or desire. Edwin, your background certainly has lent itself to creating value by really defining beginning and ending what is truly the competency of the team in, in the creation of value. And it's inspiring to hear that you've really been singularly focused not only on patient outcomes, but also um, the people that are part of your interdisciplinary care team. I love the story of bringing, you know, a nutritionist into your ACO to be able to, to assist patients. And it sounds like you've done a lot of work and really reselling the workforce within your constituent practices to make sure that they can be successful in your journey to health value. And I, I want to understand a little bit more uh, of your journey to health value. What's going to happen next for RGV ACO, and I, and I think about these uh, different tipping points that are in place, right? Where I, I've heard, you know, uh, some say that, you know, you have these different tipping points that influence physician behavior. For example, you know, we start a an MSSP contract with CMS, and that's your only value-based contract. You start, you have a little bit of a clinical tipping point where the physicians and the other providers on the care team are going to start to apply value-based clinical pathways to the practice. And then you have a cultural tipping point where you, as an ACO, you self-identify as being a provider of value in a risk-based environment. And truly, it really hits critical mass and, and full impact when you reach the financial tipping point. And that can really only come about um, when you have, you know, upwards of, you know, 50 to 70% of your business at risk. And so my question really is, I mean, what has RGV done since it, it started as an MSSP ACO? Have you adopted a multi-payer strategy that includes Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, commercial risk contracts to augment your portfolio and help the ACO along its journey 
um, in health value really reach the financial tipping point where you have more risk than you do fee for service and and you can truly create the culture that's going to be focused on uh, population health you know eric a, a lot of so to to answer your question directly yes we we have evolutioned over the course of our time and and here very practical ways in which we have done so. One was actually moving on the different models within MSSP. So we started track two, and Dr. Nelson Calaf, Dr. Melesia Fuentes, Dr. Charlie Diabreu, Dr. Fernando Peña, Dr. Pedro McDougal, and Dr. Pedro Peñalo, these six docs with Edwin Estevez right in front of it, or in the middle of all of that dynamic, said, okay, let's launch this process and let's begin uh, to design something. That was in track two in 2012. Well, since then, we moved to track three, we moved to the enhanced model, we worked through the MSSP expectations accordingly, moving and adopting the next level of challenge that was provided by the policy and or by the need that we were seeing around us. Also, by the opportunity, it, it matters to have a healthy benchmark uh, to be able to take some of this risk because otherwise the reward would not be sufficient. So I think it, it's part of the mechanic associated with that. So our growth within MSSP was there too. Uh, about three years into our operations, we did begin to move into commercial payer contracting. And so that was uh, slowly moved into there and, and began to explore that process, commercial payers, very different design, very different contracts, very different financial expectations and financial constructs, uh, very different benchmarking, very different population as a whole. That challenged the ACO to also mature and expect a sense of growth and development within ourselves that, that really tested us and still do to this day. Uh, so we expanded to that population and we added a third contract with a different level of population on the commercial side as well, but, but now begin to expand that. And so 45,000 patients later in multi-payer kind of contract modeling, growth and development within the MSSP and the expectations of risk management there, a really robust infrastructure that could facilitate our capacity for growth and development in that way has led us to this point here. And yes, we believe that the next step is actually direct contracting. And so we have applied through that process and uh, most recently uh, been accepted to think through that and, and really design a model that's very different. Most of the MA activity, the Medicare Advantage activity, is actually interdependently done. Offices engage in those contracts independently and we support, assist, provide some of the education in conjunction with the payers that may be releasing those programs into their offices. But our, our goal is to actually drive further growth and, and continually test ourselves into new models that will give us a chance to do well uh, for our population and continually do well as, a, as an operation. And so we are always looking for the creative engagement of this uh, value-based enterprise and always looking to grow and, and really engage opportunities that really make sense. Edwin, you brought up the direct contracting model, and this is something you and I have spoken about in the past, and I'd love for our listeners to hear about why you think you're confident or why you are confident in your ability to succeed in this model. You mentioned earlier in the episode that you're not afraid of risk, and I, I really think that's an important thing to call out and, and identify that uh, organizations need to be you know, forward-thinking. Your organization has really been innovative and thoughtful, but uh, you know, willing to take the risk has been an important part of your journey. And, and you've talked about it a few times. And, but there's also some 
performance expectations that I think you guys have as you analyze whether direct contracting as a next step will work for you. Just thinking about what you would share with the industry about your thinking along those lines. Thanks, Dan. Barring any catastrophic picture on the financial model of direct contracting, so not having all the details associated with benchmarking and risk adjustment, not having all the details associated with the risk adjustment factors that are kind of geographic in nature, so not having enough of the indicators to actually create a sufficient enough financial modeling approach, um, but let's assume all things being equal. What we're at right now, uh, transporting those into the mechanic of direct contracting finances accordingly, we believe that the design of the model, the design of direct contracting, as long as it continues to be physician-led, and I say this very carefully because I know for a fact that a direct contract model as designed, at least from my vantage point, in terms of its policy design, could easily be actually something that payers hijack and that they go way too far into a geographic model, then now you really have to have a massive infrastructure in order for you to be successful. And so therefore, just like nine years ago, an MSSP model was somewhat designed for groups, uh, for, for larger organized groups to actually take over, I am cautioning the design from a policy implementation to actually really have our eyes open to ensure that payers are not hijacking uh, the opportunity here for physicians to actually be engaged in the forefront of how this is done. Having said that, then also then advising physicians and advising physician groups, physician-led organizations to actually really do the infrastructure homework necessary in terms of what are the operational lifts that, that is required within the context of this new model. It's a pretty substantive model and it requires quite a bit of scale. It requires quite a bit of agility. It requires quite a bit of monitoring. So to the degree that organizations like ours are ready, I, I think that, that that's still a little bit of a far-fetched uh, premise. Nonetheless, because of the work that we've done and the success that we've achieved, because of the interest of the physicians and the engagement of an infrastructure administratively that is sound and the partnership and the interdependence that's there and the success of transforming practices into patient-centeredness along the way and the work of the MA activity on clinical documentation improvement exercises and chronic care management approaches within the context of the offices and all of these kind of set of indicators. We say, you know what, all things being equal, the constellation of our work supports for us to continue to move forward and continue to grow. It will require a lift. It will require an injection of, of a, a kind of similar process that we were a couple, you know, nine years ago or so, but definitely uh, with a sense of readiness in terms of what we can do. The MSSP is a pretty successful program for us. But how can we continually be involved in an opportunity that shapes the delivery care system because physicians are engaged in the design of it? I can think of no other way to end our, our time together today, Edwin, than what you just stated, transforming healthcare to patient-centeredness. That lift, that's really creating value-based care. RGVACO has been such an incredible example for the rest of the country. And as the country, we're in a race to make value work. Our vision at the ACLC is to be able to support leaders such as you to be able to drive value and improve 
the public and economic health of the nation through our competency-based framework and workforce development initiatives. We can't thank you enough, Edwin, for spending time with us today to be able to understand more about RGVACO. You're such a valued partner with the ACLC, and it has just been a tremendous pleasure uh, sitting down with you today to better understand your journey and health value. Gentlemen, thank you so much, Eric and Dan and the ACLC and, and everything else that is associated with the work that we're doing. I'm just honored and humbled to be part of the work and to be at the center of it um, as an organization on behalf of all of our providers and our board and our, and our patient engagement committees and all of our employees and everybody else who's connected to this work. Uh, this is a massive lift that is collaboratively done and we are excited to continue to be part of this conversation. And so thank you for the invitation and thank you for the opportunity to share a little bit of the work that's been done in South Texas through RGVACO Health Providers. So if our listeners want to learn more about RGVACO, how can they? Uh, where would you direct them, Edwin? Yeah, definitely our website gives you a little bit of taste there. And from there, feel free to send me an email uh, directly to me. Uh, obviously, our website is www.rgbacollc.com. You can reach us there. And then from there, connect to me and, and we'll definitely uh, respond and, and provide you an opportunity to know more about what we're doing. But it's definitely a, a joy and a pleasure to, to share. What Likewise on our end. Thank you for sharing your journey and health value. Thank you, everybody.